He appeared first to Mary and when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they did not believe. After that, he appeared in another form to two of them as they walked and went into the country and they went and told it to the rest. But they did not believe them either. Later, he appeared to the eleven as they sat at the table and he rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. And he said to them. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned And these signs will follow those who believe in my name. They will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will take up serpents. And if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. And they will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. In this final chapter of Mark, Jesus rises from the grave. He appears to many witnesses commands the disciples to preach the good news to the whole world. And then in verse 19 and 20, he will ascend into heaven. Did the original gospel of Mark contain these final verses? You might have a Bible where verses 9 through 20 simply don't exist. Others of you might have a note that basically says that these two most Uh, that these verses aren't found in the two most ancient manuscripts. Some teachers believe Mark wrote every word. Some concede that the style and the substance are very different from the rest of Mark. Some suggest that the original end of Mark's gospel might have been lost or damaged, but I don't find those reasons very persuasive. Some ignore the issue altogether. I'm more than happy to debate the merits for its inclusion or exclusion, knowing that for those who reject verses 9 through 20, the passage adds no new information that isn't found elsewhere in the New Testament, nor does it contradict events or doctrines that are found elsewhere in the New Testament. Those who reject Mark's authorship of these verses appeal to the fact that it's omitted in two ancient manuscripts called the Codice Sinaiticus and the Codice Vaticanus. These are two books that were written right around 300 A.D. Supporters for its exclusion go too far when they claim that Codice Sinaiticus and Codice Vaticanus as the oldest manuscripts known, are the most accurate. It is true they're very old, but they're not the oldest manuscripts. It is also not true that they were copied from the autographs, because if that were true, then they would match exactly to one another, but there are variant readings. So logically, you would think that the older the manuscript, the closer it is to the autographs. But I would point out that there are interpolations, that means additions, there are extrapolations, that means subtractions, that are found in both of these manuscripts. It is also true that the church fathers like Eusebius and Jerome noted that almost all Greek manuscripts available to them lacked verses 9 through 20. However, 
The ending did in fact exist and enjoyed wide circulation and acceptance. In the second century, Justin Martyr and Tatian knew about the ending. And Irenaeus, between 150 and 200 A.D., must have known about the long ending since he quotes verse 19 in his writing. Whether genuine or added, we're given notes on the brief deliverance of Mary in verses 9 through 11. The servant in disguise in verses 12 and 13. And then there's a rebuke for the hard-heartedness of the apostles in verses 14 through 18. Look with me in verse 9. It says, Now when he, that is Jesus, rose early on the first day of the week. The first day of the week in the Jewish calendar is Sunday. Matthew says Jesus rose on Sunday. Mark says Jesus rose on Sunday. Luke says that Jesus rose on Sunday. John says that Jesus rose on Sunday. So you're probably wondering, there shouldn't be any doubt on which day he rose. William MacDonald makes this comment. The first time she had met Jesus, that's Mary Magdalene, he had cast seven demons out of her. From then on, she served him lovingly. With her possessions. I know it's a play on words. I thought it was way funnier than you do. But that's okay. In John's gospel chapter 20 verses 11 through 18. Is that story. We learn in John chapter 20 verse 11. That Mary stood outside of the tomb weeping. And as she wept she stooped down. She looked into the tomb. She saw two angels sitting. One at where Jesus' head would have been. The other where his feet would have been. She turns and she sees Jesus standing there. And she doesn't know that it's Jesus. And Jesus says to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you have taken him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Remember, Mary came to the tomb expecting to find a dead body. But instead she finds an empty tomb. Remember, Mary was a grateful woman that Jesus had helped. Think about her state of mind and think about her circumstances. The text says that she had been delivered from seven demons, which means she was a woman with a past. There was something dark and wicked that controlled her life. I want you just for a moment to think about her state of mind. She came to the tomb Not in the belief that Jesus had risen from the dead, but in the belief that this was a man who had changed her life and had changed her circumstances significantly. She then hears Jesus speak her name. Mary. Mary will leave the tomb as the first witness of the resurrected Lord. Mary Magdalene becomes the first preacher of the resurrection if you don't count the angel and look what it says in verse 10 she went out and told those who had been with him as they mourned and and wept in luke's gospel chapter 24 verses 9 through 11 we're told that the women return from the tomb and tell the disciples that the roman guard is gone 
The stone has been rolled away. The Roman seal has been broken. The tomb is empty. And in Luke 24, 11, this is what it says. And their words seemed to them like idle tales, and they did not believe them. Jesus was resurrected from the dead. Mary did as she was told. She went and told the disciples as they mourned and wept. And what is the apostolic response? Joy, celebration, intoxication, faith. No, Mary's testimony is met with unbelief. Jesus invited Mary to tell the disciples the truth about his resurrection. Jesus had delivered her from demons and now Jesus had delivered her from something way more pernicious in her heart. And that was the sadness and the emptiness and the crushing loneliness when Jesus died. And now her heart is filled with gladness and joy and hope. And look what it says in verse 11. And when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they didn't believe. You should pause and ask yourself this question. Why didn't they believe? In just a few weeks, I'm going to be headed to Israel. And when I go, Robert Furrow from Calvary in Tucson is going to be teaching. Shay Hoodman is going to come from Got Questions. They're going to do a great job. But if I had the ability, I wish I could take each and every one of you. I wish I could load up several jumbo jets, fly you to Tel Aviv, take you to Jerusalem. Now, I want you to imagine what was going on. These are men who had walked with Jesus and talked with Jesus. They saw blind eyes open and deaf ears open. They saw the miracle of the loaves and the fishes. They saw the demon-possessed people being delivered. They watched Lazarus come back to life. They heard Jesus repeatedly say, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be arrested. They're going to execute me. I'm going to come back to life. They're going to take me. They're going to arrest me. They're going to execute me. And I'm going to come back to life. I want you to think this through for just a moment. Did the disciples think that Mary was a liar? What if I told you that the disciples may not have thought that at all? Maybe they thought the demons are back. I know that Jesus delivered her from these demons, this woman with the past. Poor girl, poor broken soul, pro, poor broken heart. This damaged poor girl has finally lost her mind. Do they think Jesus is a liar? I need you to understand something that's going on inside of their hearts. Jesus had repeatedly told them he's going to come back, but they don't believe it. And this is the sad circumstance. Unbelief destroys our capacity to see. Jesus said in John chapter 3, He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Unbelief questions the authority of God's word. In Romans chapter 10, verse 21, Paul, quoting from Isaiah 65, verse 2, says, But to Israel, he says, 
All day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. He's quoting because the people of Israel had received sign after sign, manifestation after manifestation. God showed up. God spoke to them in the book of Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. God spoke to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob and Joseph. God spoke to Isaiah, Jeremiah and Daniel. God repeatedly delivered them over and over and over again. But wickedly. Their unbelief persisted. Unbelief causes our feet to stumble, according to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 3. It shuts up the disobedient in, in prison in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20. It robs people of blessing in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 18, and Hebrews chapter 4, verse 2. You need to understand that unbelief causes a kind of spiritual hardening of the arteries. It dulls the faculty of faith. It keeps people from blessing and eternal life. And this is why unbelief is such a huge problem. But for those of you who are reading this text, you need to all of a sudden have at least a little measure of sympathy and compassion for your husband, for your wife, for your sons, for your daughters, for your family and your friends. When they say this is nonsense. Jesus rising from the dead. Think about these apostles who don't. Believe it, even though they have all of the evidence at their disposal. Can you imagine if you would have been one of those people who walked with Jesus and talked with Jesus, who watched him die? You could have visited the empty tomb on Sunday morning. You hear the excited cries from Mary Magdalene as she comes and she tells you that Jesus has risen from the dead. And look in verse 12. After that, he appeared in another form to two of them as they walked and went into the country. The full account of that event is found in Luke chapter 24, verses 13 through 31. You know it as the story of the road to Emmaus. Remember, after Jesus rose from the dead, he didn't go Easter egg hunting. He took a walk with two people. He walked seven miles with them to Mary. He appeared like a gardener to the men on the road to Emmaus. He seemed to be a stranger, a fellow traveler. But it was the same Jesus in a glorified body. You know what both of them had in common? They both had broken hearts. Perplexed hearts. They were hurt because of the tragedy that had taken place. But I want you to think for a moment, not even for a moment did they believe that Jesus was risen from the dead because they're walking away from the garden tomb. They are walking in the opposite direction. They're walking away from Jerusalem where Jesus spoke. They're walking away from Jerusalem where Jesus died. They're walking away from Jerusalem where Jesus rose from the dead because they don't believe it. In verse 13, it says, and they went and told it to the rest. But they did not believe them either. The two disciples returned to Jerusalem after walking seven miles. And then they walked the seven miles back. They explain and report their fellowship with the risen Savior. And they are met with unbelief. By the way, are you shocked? Does that shock you at least a little bit? 
In New Orleans, there was a minister who noticed a group of boys standing around a stray dog. What you boys doing? Telling lies, said one of the boys. The one who tells the biggest lie, he gets to keep the dog. The minister looked outraged. Why, when I was your age, I never thought about telling a lie. The boys looked at each other. And they were completely crestfallen. And finally, one of them just shrugged his shoulders and he said, Okay, Missy, you get the dog. There's lies, and then there's really big lies. And there is no lie bigger than the self-deceiving lie that there's nothing wrong with you. I want you to think carefully about what you're reading. The disciples' first reaction to the tales of a risen Savior are met with utter, complete unbelief and so the unbeliever and the skeptic should take a good long look at this particular passage of scripture and say look whatever else the disciples aren't carried away with grief and trauma that caused them to fabricate some sort of mythical resurrection for the skeptic and the critic who believe that the whole resurrection story is an outrageous fabrication to dupe unsuspecting country bumpkins who are willing to believe pure fantasy They completely ignore the evidence. Mary went to that tomb not expecting a risen Savior. The two disciples, Cleopas and the other unnamed servant, they're not expecting a resurrected Savior. The disciples are not expecting a resurrected Savior. You'll remember that when Cleopas heard and the unnamed disciple heard the conversation between the mysterious stranger... He asked about their sadness and he asked about their grief. And Cleopas said, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem and you don't understand the things that have happened here in these past few days? And the stranger said, what things? And Cleopas replied, did you just fall off the turnip truck? No, he didn't say that. He said, Why the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. And you'll remember what the stranger said. He said, oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things to enter into his glory? In other words, Jesus had to die in order to Bring about forgiveness and reconciliation with God and beginning with Moses and all the prophets. He expounded to them in all of the scriptures concerning himself. It says in Luke 24, 25 through 27, Mary's heart was perplexed and Jesus opened the tomb and gave a revelation of himself. The disciples hearts were troubled and discouraged and doubting and slow. And Jesus walks with them and he opens their heart by opening the scripture and reveals to them from the promises of God and the story of salvation, all that the prophets had written. The greatest Bible teacher takes the greatest lesson from the greatest book. Did he start with Genesis chapter 3 about 
sinful human beings? Did he continue with Genesis 22 and the story of Abraham and Isaac, how he offers his son and God intervenes? Does he touch on the Passover and the Levitical sacrifices and the tabernacle of ceremonies and the day of atonement? Does he pause and point out the serpent in the wilderness and the suffering servant of Isaiah 53? Does he continue with the prophetic message in Psalm 22? He turns page after page of doctrine Doctrine and prophecy, but it isn't simply doctrine and prophecy. The Bible says he spoke about the things concerning himself. Do you know what he says? Genesis, it's about me. Exodus, it's about me. Leviticus, it's about me. Deuteronomy, it's about me. And the Bible says that they came to the end of their journey. And they begged the stranger to break bread with them. But he said that he needed to move on and they they begged him to stay. And the Bible says that he broke the bread. And when he broke the bread, their eyes were opened. And they saw and understood that this was Jesus. They knew for themselves that Jesus was alive. They had the empty tomb. They had the message of the angels. They had the witnesses. They had the scriptures. But now they had their own personal encounter with a real risen Savior. One of the reasons I'm inclined to accept this ending as genuine is it because it paints the disciples not in the best light, but in the worst light. If you were going to make up something, That you knew your children and your grandchildren were going to read. Would you tell them about the most wicked thing that you've ever done? Would you show them and tell them about the emptiness and the darkness and the wickedness and the unbelief? This is one of the reasons why I believe that this passage probably needs to be in here. Those closest to Jesus, his disciples who followed him, who heard him, who witnessed the miracles, who heard his words, who experienced the horror of his arrest and the trauma of his execution, had the ability, just like you and I, if we walked to if we went to Jerusalem, even now, we can walk from the place where the temple stood to the place of the tomb. It would only take us 15 minutes. They saw the empty tomb. They saw the the folded napkin. They saw the broken Roman seal. They heard the testimony of the women. They listened to the disciples recount the Bible study and how the scriptures were open to them. They come to them and then they they don't believe it. The reason? The disciples live in the same world that you live in. You see, in their world, people don't come back to life. But Jesus does come back to life. Someone has said that unbelief is not the cause of sin. Sin is the cause of unbelief. There was a very famous skeptic and atheist, Ernest Renan. His famous agnostic prayer goes like this. Oh, God, if there is a God, save my soul. If I have a soul. Is there a God? Do you have a soul? 
You know what this text reminds me of? There's only one good reason to believe the resurrection. Because it's true. There's only one good reason to reject the resurrection. Because it's false. And by the way, if the resurrection of Jesus is false, then Christ was a liar. The apostles were deluded. The martyrs were deceived. The believer is in darkness. God remains a mystery. Death remains a mystery. My preaching is useless. Your faith is in vain. We are still in our sins. And Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 14 through 19, We are of all people most miserable. Our loved ones are lost. Blot out the resurrection and Christianity is simply something that is sterile. But look what it says in verse 14 later. He appeared to the eleven as they sat at the table and he that's Jesus rebuked their unbelief and he rebukes their hardness of heart because look what it says, because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. Jesus appears, it says to the eleven, this is really absent Thomas on the same Sunday evening. They are given the collective name. The eleven. We know Thomas is absent because from the other passage, it says that eight days later, Jesus will show up. He will tell Thomas, take your hand and place it in my side. Take your hand and feel the wounds. He says, stop, stop it. Stop being an unbeliever. He says, look, blessed are you because you believe because he says, my Lord and my God. But he says, more blessed are those who haven't seen And believe. Jesus rebukes their unbelief and hardness of heart. Why does Jesus rebuke their unbelief and hardness of heart? Know what the text says. Because they didn't believe those who had seen him after he had risen. Think about it. The unbelief isn't rooted in facts and circumstances and history. Their unbelief is rooted in the reality of the stubbornness and the wickedness of their refusal to believe. They walked with Jesus. They saw everything that Jesus did. They watched him die. They had the privilege of access to the tomb and the testimony of these women. He, re- he rebukes them for rejecting the evidence and he, re- he, he rebukes them for refusing to deal with the facts. And by the way, this becomes an important part because guess what? For the person who says, look, that's just your own religious idea. The resurrection of Jesus isn't a religious idea. It's a historical fact. It's rooted and grounded in history and reality. Jesus rebukes them for rejecting love, logic. Evidence. Facts. Mary had a perplexed heart. The disciples on the road to Emmaus had a sorrowful heart. The apostles had hard hearts. And the implication is, look, 
Why won't you believe the testimony of those who have no reason to lie? The Bible seems to indicate that unbelief and hardness of heart has long been the besetting sins of the apostle. They didn't just wake up one morning and have a hard heart. It was something that they had to deal with every moment of every day, even as they walked with Jesus. This is interesting. This would also become the greatest obstacle in the apostolic preaching of the gospel to others. Because you see, part of the preaching of the gospel is the reality of saying, Jesus Christ is risen from the dead and because he's alive, he can change your life. And remember, they're met with antagonism, skepticism. There's people who are saying, look, dead people don't come back to life. And so what does Jesus do to convince the woman with the perplexed and broken heart? What does Jesus do to the men who are walking away from Jerusalem in the most important date of all of human history with discouraged and broken hearts? What does Jesus do with a group of men with hard and unbelieving hearts? He shows up. Those with hard hearts, he opens up their mind. And you would expect. Joy and rejoicing. But again, that means you haven't really read the New Testament. Because if you look at Luke chapter 24, and you might just turn, it's the next book over, to Luke chapter 24. I am going to read verses 36 and 37, which speaks of the circumstance after the two guys from Emmaus have made the announcement that Jesus has appeared to them and they don't believe him. This is what it says in verse 36. Chapter 24 of Luke. Now, as they said these things, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said to them. Peace to you. But they were terrified and frightened and supposed that they had seen a spirit. Now, think about that for just a moment. After all that they've been through, after all that's been said in the upper room. Which is locked, according to Luke. Jesus shows up, says, peace be with you. And the disciples have a panic attack. They're thinking, wait, wait a minute. Where's the cameras? Wait a minute. This is a prank, right? This is the ultimate hoax. Wait, I thought 3D imaging won't be invented for thousands of years. But think about how the, all the people that you know that feel exactly the same way. I know what you Christians are doing here. You're going to preach a compelling message. You're going to talk about love, logic, and evidence. You're going to persuade me, convince me into accepting Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And all of you are going to go, ha, we got you. We tricked you into becoming a Christian. Oh, yeah, it's all one big fat fabrication. No, that's not what's going to happen. Because Jesus really rose from the dead. And look what it says in verse 15. And he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. 
Now, does he say go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature just for fun? I don't think so. He says, go into all the world and preach the gospel, which is the good news. And what is the good news? The good news is the reality that sins can be forgiven, that empty hearts can be filled and broken hearts can be healed and that guilty hearts can be forgiven. And dark hearts can experience light and love and a future. And look what it says in verse 16. And we're going to come back to verse 15 next week. But look what it says in verse 16. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. But he who does not believe will be condemned. What does verse 16 mean? The disciples were commanded to go into all the world and preach the gospel. Now, I'm going to suggest to you because there's a whole lot that we can say, but I want to tie these two verses together to show you the immediate impact of what the passage is saying. The passage is basically saying this, that the preaching of the gospel is going to have one of two effects. You will believe it or you will reject it. You will accept it and be saved or you'll reject it. And be condemned. Now this is hard because in the, in the old King James it says this. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. But he who does not believe will be damned. That's the word that he uses. We're reluctant to use that word because it's used in such a profane fashion under circumstances where people aren't using it in the biblical sense of the word, which means condemned by God. But that's the meaning of the word. Condemned by God. Condemnation is a word that means the judicial pronouncement of guilt for crimes that have been committed. In the last 40 years, I've been asked every question that you can imagine and some that you can't. I'm trying to think if anyone has ever asked me, what must I do to be condemned? I don't think anyone has ever asked me that question. What must I do to remain condemned? And the right answer is, of course, nothing. You don't have to do anything. All you have to do is remain in the sorry state of willful unbelief. All you have to do is just simply remain with a perplexed heart and remain with a sorrowful heart and remain with an empty heart and remain with a broken heart and remain with an unbelieving heart. You don't have to do anything. You don't even have to be a good person or a wicked person. All you have to do is remain in the same state that you are and you will wake up in hell. I want you to think this through. Jesus is basically saying 
All that's required to accept Jesus is to trust him and believe him and believe that he is who he says he is and that he can save you and forgive you and redeem you. All that's required for salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone. The cross makes it simple. And all you have to do to be condemned is just simply reject the provision of God. Since God is holy and since God is just, refusing to believe in Jesus is itself a damnable sin. And this is something that most people really don't believe. They know that murder is wrong and they know that stealing is wrong and they know that lying is wrong. They know that all of those things are wrong. But if you ask them the question, is it sinful with a hard heart to reject the gospel of Jesus? You know what the answer is? Yes. There's nothing more horrible. There's nothing more consequential. What in the world can save you if you willingly put aside God's way of salvation? And some have taught that baptism becomes a part and parcel of the salvation because the passage says. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. Well, does this mean that baptism saves you? No, because the passage doesn't say. He who believes and is baptized and saved and he who doesn't believe and refuses to be baptized will be condemned because there are over 150 passages in the New Testament that repeatedly say you're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It is the ministry of Jesus. The thief on the cross wasn't baptized, yet Jesus assured him that he would be in paradise. The Gentiles in Caesarea were baptized after they were saved in Acts 10.44. Jesus himself did not baptize according to John chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, which is a strange omission if baptism is necessary for salvation. And Paul thanked God that he baptized very few Corinthian believers in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 14, which is a strange thing to thank God if baptism is in fact essential to salvation. Baptism is connected with death and burial in the New Testament, but not with the new birth. Baptism isn't a condition of salvation. It's the outward expression that a person is saved. People don't get baptized in order to be saved. People get baptized because they are saved. People don't put on a wedding ring to be married. They're married. And then they put the ring on. The ring isn't what makes you married. It's the covenant before God. And look what it says. And these signs will follow those who believe in my name. They'll cast out demons. They'll speak with new tongues. And again, in verse 17 and 18, Jesus describes certain miracles that will accompany those who believe the gospel. The question is said, well, are these for today? Do these things happen today? Do can people be delivered from demons today? Will you speak in new tongues today? And even those people who doubt or deny the sign gifts are for today, are willing to concede. Well, the disciples cast out demons in Acts 8, in Acts 16, in Acts chapter 19. They spoke supernaturally in languages they never learned in Acts chapter 2, verses 4 through 11, Acts chapter 10, verse 46, Acts chapter 19, verse 6. Paul handled 
serpents in Acts 28, but not in the snake-handling Appalachian kind of way. It wasn't that he goes, here we are on the island of Malta, and we're going to have a revival. Bring out your snakes, and I'm going to let them bite me. That's, that's actually not, not how it happened. They're going out. They're gathering up sticks. They're gathering up a bunch of sticks. A snake is in the woodpile, comes out, bites Paul, and all of the people watching are waiting for him to swell up and die. But he doesn't swell up and die. By the way, they drank poison without harmful effects is the only one that's not recorded in the book of Acts. But it's attributed to John and Barnabas by Eusebius in chapter 3, uh, verse 39 of his major book. So the disciples laid hands on the sick for healing in Acts chapter 3, Acts chapter 19, Acts chapter 28. And look at verse 18, finally. They will take up serpents, and if they drink anything deadly, it will be no, by no means harm them. Aren't you glad we... This is a proof text that you can drink Starbucks. <laughs> or Pepsi-Cola. No, that's not what it means. When it's saying drink deadly things, it's not encouraging you to drink deadly things. In Hebrews chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, it says, How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him, God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his will. I need you to think this through. The gifts were to authenticate the message so that you would understand that what this person was saying is true. Clearly, no one saw more miracles than Jesus' earthly disciples. No one saw more than they did. No one was exposed to repeated miracles so much. And did it mean that they go, hey, look, we've been exposed to repeated miracles. So guess what? We're going to believe that Jesus is the Lord. No. And by the way, the emphasis in the passage is not that these signs will generate belief. But look what this text says. But rather, these signs will follow those who believe. A few days ago, a self-proclaimed agnostic called my radio program. He said, let me play devil's advocate. And I go, okay, you be the devil's advocate, I'll be Christ's advocate. And he said, so what? Pardon me? So what? So what if Jesus rose from the grave? Who cares? What does it mean? I told the caller. It means that God is real. It means that Jesus' message is true. It means that if he can come back to life, then there's the possibility that you could come back to life. You know what else it means? That there's purpose in life. And he said, well, what if Jesus doesn't make my life easy? What if he makes it difficult? What if my husband or my wife leaves me? Or what if I lose my job? Or what if I get sick? What's in it for me? 
There's only one good reason to follow Jesus. And that's because what he said is true. Do you remember what I told you earlier? There's only one good reason to believe that the resurrection is true. And that's because it is. There's only one good reason to follow Jesus. Because if what he said is true, then perplexed hearts and broken hearts and guilty hearts and empty hearts and fearful hearts can be made full and bright and forgiven forever. We should follow Jesus because it's true. And by the way, for the rest of your life, you will be invited to stand in one of two places. The place where it's true and the place where it's not. So if you believe that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead and can change your heart, stand. Stand. Stand in the place of truth. Stand. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we know that we live in a world where people wickedly and perniciously hold on to their doubt to the hardness of heart. Lord, we, we know that so many people are not persuaded by love or logic or facts or evidence because they want to hold on to that old life and they want to hold on to the darkness and they want to hold on to the wickedness and they want to hold on to the sin and they want to hold on to their own life. Instead of handing it over to Jesus. And so Heavenly Father I pray for each person standing. As they repeated this prayer so many times. That they would cry out to you. That they would admit that they're sinners in need of a savior. And Heavenly Father that they would pray that simple prayer. Lord I know that I'm a sinner. And Lord I know that you're the Savior. And I know that you can save me from my sins. And Lord I want to walk with you. I want to submit to you. I want to believe you. Heavenly Father I know that there might be difficulties and trials. And I know that not everyone will be persuaded with love or logic or facts or evidence. But Lord, I pray that you would give me the strength and the courage to tell people the truth that Jesus Christ is the Lord and that he's risen from the dead and that he's changed my life. In Jesus' name.